This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. My name is Jenna, and I'm here to help you do all the hard things. I'm a licensed professional counselor with nearly 10 years of clinical and research experience working with people who have some of the most debilitating OCD and anxiety in the world. I'm also a mom, a personal trainer, and a lover of modern spirituality. My goal is to bring you all the research, guidance, and encouragement you need to help you remember and know how strong you truly are. Now let's get to it. All right, you guys, welcome back to another episode of All the Hard Things. This is an episode that I'm selfishly really excited. I'm I'm always excited to record and learn, but this one I need some help with. So today I have the reflective doc with me. Her name is Dr. Jennifer Reed. Um, She is a podcast host. She is a psychiatrist. Um, And so we're going to get to learn a little bit more about Dr. Reed here. We're going to talk about sleep today. So um, Dr. Reed, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started. Yeah. Well, Jenna, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to speak with you today. So I am a psychiatrist. I practice in Philadelphia and I work largely with adults struggling with anxiety, um, including things like OCD and generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, and then really help a lot of people with insomnia. And so difficulty with their sleep. I'm not a sleep doctor by fellowship, but insomnia is really an area I've focused a lot of energy and attention on. And I think it's such an important and big topic. And then the reflective doc piece was fairly recently during the pandemic, I wanted to find a way to speak out and really share information that I was sharing with my patients in session every day to help people who were struggling with some of these areas. And I thought a broader way to reach that audience, as you have found as well, is through this podcast and my own podcast and writing. And so I'm so excited to be here to talk about sleep. I love to share information about it because it's so important. Yeah. And that is something that I'm coming to learn myself. So I had talked to you, Dr. Reed, kind of about my own feelings of inequipedness of dealing with problematic sleep. Um, You know, I can talk all day about certain rituals that the person might be doing from an OCD perspective that may be inhibiting sleep. And I'm certainly, you know, competent in being able to help them reduce those rituals or try to resist them and come up with a plan. Um, But when it goes much further than that, I'm kind of lost, admittedly, about, you know, you know, what is actually going on with sleep, what's good sleep hygiene. So I think first and foremost, a lot of us kind of have this idea of sleep is that it's, well, it's just sleep, right? There's this idea of like, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. There's not much going on when I'm sleeping. But now that I've actually been reading more about it in preparation for this interview, it's kind of, I mean, it's super important. We're supposed to be spending like a third of our life sleeping. It's almost like your brain is getting power washed of toxins and consolidating memories. So can you just give us probably a loaded question, but can you give us a crash course on sleep and what's happening and why it's so much more than just going offline? 
Absolutely. I mean, this really was something I, you know, dove into and did my own reading because it wasn't something that was covered in medical school. And it really wasn't something we talked much about in my residency in psychiatry. And I had so many patients, not to mention family members, myself, kids who were struggling with sleep and with insomnia. And I thought there's just, there has to be a better way to help once I've treated their depression or anxiety, if they're still not sleeping well, they are going to be at higher risk of relapse. We've seen that in the data. So I think it's such an important topic and one that I came to a little bit later in my career. So sleep, you're absolutely right. We are doing so much when we sleep. If you think about it, that we evolved as a species, we give seven or eight hours of our time to be unconscious, to be not able to protect ourselves from, you know, threats like tigers and things back in the day. So it really is such a crucial and important drive sleep. I mean, it's really something that honestly, we cannot even prevent ourselves from getting sleep. We can't truly starve ourselves of sleep. Like we could unfortunately starve ourselves of, of food or nutrients. So even if you don't sleep a ton of hours at night, your body and your brain are going to take the sleep they need. So you might have these little micro sleeps during the day where your brain's just like, I'm out, I need a minute. And then you kind of come back in. So important things to know about sleep, in addition to what you, you know, were suggesting is that it is a time when your brain is sort of cleaning itself. It's so interesting. It's a time where you're really helping to consolidate memory and process even challenging or traumatic events with a little less stimulation than you are a lot less stimulation than you have during the day. But there are really two key processes at work. So you have your circadian rhythm. If you've ever heard of that, that's what tells your brain hey, it's nighttime, go to sleep, or hey, it's daytime, wake up, right? This is that 12-hour and then 12-hour cycle where your brain really knows what's daytime and what's nighttime. And as it turns out, we kind of have circadian clocks and cells throughout our whole body, which is so interesting. And so even when they've done studies where they've had scientists go into these totally dark caves, must've been quite an experiment, but and spend weeks there, they didn't have, they had a small shift in their 24 hour sleep cycle, sleep wake cycle, but they didn't have a growth shift, right? It really was around 24 hours, a little bit longer. So we have cells throughout our whole body that are keeping track of time and that tell us when it's time for bed. And we can get into that, you know, pattern. The other important drive is your sleep drive. It's just something that you wake up in the morning or whenever you wake up after your most consolidated sleep time, and it starts building up over time. There's a chemical called adenosine that starts to build up throughout the day. And data suggests that around 16 hours, you're kind of at your max buildup and that's what helps you also start to fall asleep again. And in fact, one of our most you know, potent drugs that people utilize, caffeine actually blocks that adenosine. So it blocks the sensation of being tired, but guess what? The adenosine's building up anyway. And so when the caffeine wears off, you can really crash. So you have these two cycles working together, your circadian rhythm and the sort of sleep pressure. And where you really notice that there are these two separate systems is when you're experiencing jet lag, for example, or you're working a night shift and then a day shift and they're not lined up. So for example, you've been up all day and then all night, maybe a medical student on call the next morning, they think, okay, I'm just going to go home and sleep all day. Well, guess what? Your circadian rhythm knows it's daytime. And it's in the habit of being awake during that time and being asleep at night. And so you get this mismatch and the sleep that is still accumulating. Your sleep need is really increasing over time, that sleep drive. And so you get that mismatch and you feel awful. And I don't know if you're like me, when I'm jet lagged, I feel 
awful across the board. It's not just that I'm tired. It's that my stomach is kind of queasy. I'm sort of hungry, but not really. I'm eating maybe more junk food. I have a headache. I just feel this general malaise. And like I said, these systems affect your entire body. So these two systems working together is what we're trying to optimize when we're helping people do some sleep training. We want to work with your biology, right? And really try and make changes to behaviors that can help you get the best night of sleep possible. So I won't go into some of the more details about the types of sleep that you're getting each night, but there are different kinds at different times of day and night or at night. And those are ones that we can, you know, see some of the problems that occur in people's sleep. That's so interesting. As I'm sitting here listening to you, I wrote down a ton of notes. Um, (laughs) And so I'm just, you know, these are all good recommendations for everybody, right? So everyone has and can apply, you know, the information that you said about the circadian rhythms, the adenosine and and everything like that. Um, I'm trying to imagine the ways in which someone who has OCD or anxiety or someone who's in recovery doing treatment for OCD and anxiety, things like consolidating memories, things like having better decision-making, needing that executive functioning to be working, all of those things that sleep does for our brains. Can you just give our, like the people out there who have OCD or have anxiety, why would they want to have good decision-making abilities? Why would they want to have good consolidation of memories? Why would they specifically want to have their executive functioning be working to par? Why is it so important for that population in particular um, to be getting sleep so that their brain can function in these ways? Yeah, that is a really terrific question. I think What I would start with in describing that is just differentiating between sleep deprivation and insomnia, because I think they can be used, you know, by individuals as sort of the same thing, and they they are very different. So sleep deprivation really is defined as fewer than seven hours of sleep, like fewer than, excuse me, fewer than six hours of sleep. And ideally we're getting around seven hours. That's what's recommended. So it's fewer than those, that number of hours, and it's not being able to give yourself that sleep opportunity. So someone who is maybe working two different jobs to try and make ends meet, and they're not able to get to sleep as early as they want to. And then they wake up early the next morning. And this goes on and on and on. Or people with a mindset as you you know, mentioned earlier, I'll sleep when I'm dead. I'm going to work hard, play hard, and sleep is just going to be absolutely secondary. I can get by in four or five hours. Well, when you look at the data, that really is causing a lot of different health problems. And I certainly can talk through a few of those more specifically, but fewer than six hours regularly in your 24 hour period can cause a lot of um, risks and can affect your thinking, your decision-making, things like impulsivity and anxiety. So we'll talk more about that. But just to point out the difference, when it comes to insomnia, I'd like to describe that, and I've seen it written as sort of dissatisfaction with our sleep. It's not the quality of sleep that we want it to be. It's not the timing that we want it to be. It doesn't necessarily mean sleep deprivation. And often we're giving ourselves so much sleep opportunity. We're in bed for 10 hours, even though we're only getting seven, that that starts to create some of the problems of insomnia. But insomnia doesn't necessarily mean sleep deprivation, right? So if you're giving yourself the opportunity to sleep, even if you have insomnia and your sleep's a little rough, sometimes it's hard to fall asleep. It's hard to stay asleep. You wake up earlier than you want. You still may be getting overall the number of hours you need to not have true sleep deprivation. And that's part of the work we do with someone with insomnia is just pointing out those differences and saying, you can actually function very well on the number of hours you're getting, but I see how frustrated you are with when they're happening, how they're happening. And so we start working on that specifically. 
So in things like OCD or anxiety, you know, I had a, I was talking to Dr. Bauer who does a let's talk kids health podcast. And she described a part of the brain called the amygdala as sort of your smoke alarm. And that smoke alarm tells you when you're under threat, you start to have anxiety, right? It may be when there's actually something threatening, like there's a true fire or you're truly being, you know, someone is coming toward you or you're feeling like truly threatened. And there can be false alarms where I'm getting into bed at night and I've associated getting into bed with lying there and feeling tired and frustrated. And so I start to feel anxiety. I start to have this, you know, false alarm, smoke alarm. And what we know is that true sleep deprivation over time increases the activity of that amygdala, increases the sensitivity of that smoke alarm. So you start getting a lot more of those kind of alarm bells, those false, false alarms. And that can create you know, panic attacks. It certainly can increase the obsessional thinking in OCD. And you don't have some of that top-down control that can be helpful in OCD. So you start to have increased obsessional thinking. And when we talk about, you know, the exposure and response prevention that we use to treat patients with OCD, we're trying to prevent them from doing the compulsive, the compulsions, right? And that can be hard because just our general willpower, you know, if you know this, if you're sleep deprived and you try not to eat a donut for breakfast that's sitting right in front of you, that when we are sleep deprived, it's harder for us to make choices that are aligned with what we want to have happen, right? What we think would be healthy to do. We might reach for things that aren't very healthy. We might have a harder time not checking or not repeatedly counting or some of the different compulsions that people do with OCD. It can get harder to manage those. It can get harder to resist those. And so you sort of making it harder for yourself to do the EXRP, which I don't think many people enjoy doing. They see how important it is, but can we make it any easier for them by making sure that they're well slept and they understand the importance of sleep. That's so important. And I love that you gave a really good look into, you know, when not only do these tips kind of apply to so many different people, people at large, but, you know, especially for those individuals who are going through the exposure and recovery process, right? Like the example that you gave with the donut, if you know, it's, it's harder to resist these behaviors, specifically compulsions. When you're tired, you just don't have the gas in the tank to be doing the hard things that, you know, you need to be doing, but otherwise, if you did have more decent sleep, that it would, it would be a little bit easier for you to have that, um, you know, stamina to kind of resist that. So I'm thinking too, just consolidation of memories, right? Like you know, I, we go over so much psychoeducation in therapy sessions. We go over so much. There's so many skills that we learn. I want my members who I see, I want them to be having good sleep so that they can actually consolidate that and commit those things to memory and store them so that it can, you know, affect them positively in the future in their recovery and other things like executive functioning, right? Being able to talk more in depth about their values, talk more in depth about their triggers. Um, yeah, it's just, it's so incredibly important. And it's not just, you know, going offline and giving your body a chance to rest. There's a lot that's happening there. Um, so you spoke a little bit about some of the difficulties that people in general kind of struggle with when it comes to sleep, you know, waking up too early, waking up sporadically throughout the night, also just in general, not being able to fall asleep. Um, specifically with people who have OCD and anxiety, what are some other um, problem areas that you tend to see? I know one that I see a lot is, you know, at the end of the day, people are in bed, 
They, they might be otherwise very tired, but it's hard for them to kind of turn their mind off. They're mentally reviewing something that happened that day, or they're really worried and fearful about something that's coming up. Um, so relative specifically to the OCD and anxiety population, what are some specific issues that you run into when it comes to, to those people in sleep? Mm-hmm. Well, something I'd point out as well when you're sleep deprived is your capacity to learn new information and your brain to learn and change is going to be diminished as well. And so we see this in kids who are really sleep deprived and going to school, having more difficulty in paying attention and concentrating. And what are we trying to do with exposure and response prevention? We're trying to reteach the brain that, look, these things are not threatening. If I don't do the compulsion, I'm learning that what I thought was going to happen or feared happening does not happen, right? So you're learning that and you're making that shift. And so that can be even harder to do. Similar to maybe I would recommend patients aren't taking some of our sedative medications during EXRP because it can make them more tired or just less able to concentrate and less able to do some of those learning processes. I just wanted to make sure that I mentioned that because I see that as so important as you're preparing to go in for therapy or in recovery. As far as some of those thoughts that are coming up when it comes to insomnia. So if we shift over to, this is just not quality sleep. I can't fall asleep when I want the thoughts start to race those types of things. I think it's important when I think about insomnia, I describe that two major things that are probably going on is either one, something is too stimulating and you're not able to fall asleep. And again, this is adaptive. If we are under threat or if something's really frightening us or we need to do something, we don't wanna be nodding off, right? Our body is very good at saying, we're under threat, we need to mobilize, we need to get going, fight or flight, right? So if something's overly stimulating and that can be something fun, like watching a really exciting movie or being on social media, you know, myself included, have trouble with keeping that in, under moderate, in moderation, but something is too stimulating and that includes anxious thoughts. Anxiety, again, designed to be really stimulating to keep us safe, but when it's constant or when it's going overboard, it starts to really interfere with our ability to calm and relax and fall into sleep. And the thing about sleep is the harder you work at it, the worse it may become because it really is such a unique process that it's a very natural process. You talk about the most holistic way to take care of our health. Sleep is really it. But the harder you work at it or the more you start to worry, those thoughts are stimulating for your system. And anything that disrupts the balance of sedating and stimulating within our system is going to make it hard to sleep. And the other thing that can go awry is just the scheduling is sort of the training that you've done to your brain that when I get into my bedroom and I get into bed, I associate that with being restless, being frustrated, rolling around in bed, dreading the night, thinking about the next day with trepidation. And so I really train my, my brain that my bedroom and my bed specifically is a place for stress or anxiety or negative experiences. And our brains are so good at learning, thank goodness, all throughout our lives at all ages. And it learns quickly. Oh, okay. This is where I need to be stressed. This is where I go to, to stress out, unfortunately. So the work that we do with people in particular with anxiety, a lot of anxious thoughts, or even intrusive thoughts, is we really try to help them identify some of the catastrophic aspects of those thoughts and really challenge them. So something that comes up a lot is someone saying, oh my gosh, if I don't sleep well tonight, I'm gonna be a disaster tomorrow. And I'll go through and talk with them. Okay, if you've been having trouble sleeping, let's say for even the past six months or the past year, how many nights a week do you think you have trouble? Well, maybe three or four. Okay, 
So on how many following days when you went to work or school or what have you interacted with your family, how many of those days did something truly catastrophic happen, right? Something really terrible as a result. And I'll often say, well, not, not really at all. I didn't, I didn't feel great. And I was like, well, of course, you know, none of us feel great if we don't sleep that well, but let's really figure out what would be your sort of percentage functioning when you're sleep deprived or when you just had a rough night of, of insomnia, would it really be 10 or 15% like you think, or would it be more like 70 or 80? Could you say to yourself, yeah, I might be a little more irritable, a little more snacky, a little more, you know, a little less productive perhaps, but I think really addressing some of the catastrophic aspects around sleep can be helpful across different anxiety disorders. When it comes to OCD, we also want to differentiate between just those, those kinds of thoughts, intrusive thoughts, and really doing those compulsive behaviors at night. And I've worked with patients who really had trouble falling asleep because that's when they started to repeatedly do some of the checking, right? And so we're coming up, trying to come up with strategies and working with therapists like, do you, Jenna, and how do we address those compulsions at that time when it's particularly vulnerable or particularly triggered by the situation, right? What are some strategies we can use to start working on addressing those compulsions, even starting them earlier, frankly, if it does take a certain amount of time to sort of reach comfort, even if they're doing the compulsions, starting them a little earlier in the evening so they could potentially finish in a satisfying way before it's time to go to sleep. Now, of course, the long-term goal is to really cut down on those compulsions. But as we've said, getting enough sleep is really going to help you be able to do that, right? It's sort of this circular interaction. So that's definitely another way that I try and help patients in addressing some of the compulsive behaviors and improve their sleep at the same time. Awesome. Yeah. I love that you mentioned, um, you know, the goal long-term is to obviously be able to reduce those compulsions and, you know, get rid of them completely ideally. Uh, but when it comes to sleep, sometimes that's really difficult, right? If you are, you know, amplifying yourself so that you're super, super anxious right before bed, as we often are, when we resist compulsions, sometimes that can be tricky. Um, but yeah, we used to do that in the residential recovery unit that I used to work at. So many people obviously struggled with sleep um, and we would actively make sure that their exposure work reflected that, like the mm -hmm. exposure work that they did throughout the day reflected what was problematic for them at night. So for instance, if someone had a hard time you know, just as an example, I feel like I need to, I, I need to lay down just right in my bed before I can actually fall asleep. It needs to feel just right. Um, you know, at night, certainly that would be the game changer. We want them to eventually be able to just go to bed, regardless of how it feels, maybe even potentially have the pillow feel not right or their body feel not right. But throughout the day, even I would have them as an exposure, go and lay in their room and intentionally make it not right. You know, the goal isn't necessarily to have them fall asleep, but throughout the day, even we're doing exposures that can hopefully set them up for success later at night. So something else that I really, in addition to the rumination at night and worrying, um, I love the idea of kind of, you know, when they are awake, like challenging that a little bit and just becoming more rational about it. But at the end of the day, right, like they're, they're going to potentially have to have that experience, that experiential shift of, oh my gosh, I did have not so great sleep. And I, 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 maybe I do not feel great, but I still, I still managed, right? Like I mm. want them to have that experience. I want them to have potentially the experience that, oh, well I slept and 
the probability of me having a bad day the next day wasn't as bad as I thought, or it's not as catastrophic, like you said, as I thought. Um, and, and maybe their sleep actually does end up turning out okay without them having to do all these rituals. So there's definitely a, an element and benefit of, you know, those learning experiences taking place. Um, one other area that I tend to see people struggling a lot, especially with intrusive thoughts, um, not sure if you can speak to dreams at all, but I have a lot of people, I'm just like spinning this on you. It wasn't something that we prepared. So sorry, <laughs> but um, I have a lot of people who are really fearful of going to sleep because they're afraid of having certain intrusive thoughts while they're sleeping or bad nightmares, um, so on and so forth. So not sure if you can speak to that um, outside of just obviously exposure work throughout the day and trying not to avoid sleep. But if you could speak to dreams at all, I think that might be helpful. Yeah, I mean, certainly what, what comes to mind in thinking about someone who is being awakened by nightmares is, of course, doing a really thorough trauma screen to find out if there was any um, post-traumatic stress, you know, incorporated into or alongside their OCD. We know that many of these disorders, unfortunately, can come together as people go through difficult experiences in their life. So being able to, you know, diagnose and be aware of some of the, the trauma responses that people have and some of the really important work and how how to mediate that. When it comes to our dreams, something that I find helpful to think about and to share with patients is that essentially, I mean, this is short of these really disturbing nightmares, which again, I think might benefit from, you know, meeting with someone like me, a psychiatrist to talk about even short-term using a medication to try and mediate that or see if there might be some other, you know, active treatments that we could use. But when I think about dreams in general, even really vibrant dreams or kind of unusual dreams, it really, our brain is able to go through and put all these different things together, all these different thoughts, all these different snippets through the day, but it's processing it at a time where our, our nervous system, the system that's really fight or flight and really kind of ramps up when it's under stress is quieted down at night. So it's actually a time where our brain can kind of process some difficult information without some of that physiological or you know body sensation feeling of all that adrenaline going through the body. So it's sort of like a practice run to process some of this. And in fact, we know if someone has gone through a traumatic situation or has had some sort of really fearful or traumatic event, the better we can help them sleep soon after this traumatic experience, the less likely they are to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. And we think this is part of it, right? I don't know if there's a clear study on this, but of course, if the brain is getting a chance to process really difficult information when it's not so stimulated, when it's not so wrapped up with adrenaline, it's a little bit easier to do that, right? It's like trying to have a conversation or an argument maybe with your loved one with a really loud, powerful, negative soundtrack behind you that's just making everything seem more intense and more scary. And when you're trying to, when you're processing these things at night, it can really be a time for your brain to sort of sort it out. So again, even that a shift in how you're thinking about what those dreams are, whether you're thinking of them as threatening or you're thinking of them as like my brain's practice run to process some of this, right? And moving toward a more acceptance perspective, I really do think that mindfulness within anxiety disorders is so incredibly important because it's living in the present. Okay, at this moment, for example, with insomnia, at this moment, 3 a.m., okay, I'm in my dark room, I'm awake, 
probably would prefer to be asleep, but I am awake right now. Here's some thinking time, right? But not to feel like, oh my gosh, panicked by that or something bad's going to happen. More just naming it and just accepting that this is the moment that I'm in right now. And the less we can start to really worry about what this means for the future, or the less we can live in that really worried future, which is just a guess, right? And we might be guessing something bad happening, but we could also have other more neutral thoughts about the future. So these are some of the areas that I might, you know, how I would answer perhaps the dream question, but even more broadly in how to incorporate some mindfulness. I love, love the idea of mindfulness. I think mindfulness is crucial when it comes to, you know, the OCD and anxiety recovery process. And I think people mistake mindfulness as having to be like a really hardcore, really focused, really structured meditation practice. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it doesn't have to be that, <laughs> I mean, that, that might work for some people and certainly there are benefits associated with that for some, but it's as simple as just recognizing, okay, I'm feeling this way right now, being that observer versus, you know, the, the actual, you know, person who's going through it. Right. So just observing your thoughts, noticing the thoughts, but not necessarily connecting to it. Um, so yeah, I definitely can see how that would be helpful. Um, You mentioned some quick tips, obviously throughout this whole entire episode, but you know, I'm still thinking of those individuals out there who do struggle with sleep. I would love for them to have some practical tips that they can start to use to better their sleep. And I know we know all about, you know, shouldn't use your phone before bed, but I didn't realize until I did some of my own research on it, that, that, that related to the circadian rhythms and that your body didn't really know the difference between actual light from outside and your phone light. Like I I heard that, yeah, we're not supposed to have our phones on right before bed, but I didn't really understand why. So if you could maybe give us some quick tips and actually tell us why, um, especially from like an OCD and anxiety standpoint, I think that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I think something that I would encourage people to learn a little bit more about would be cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Um, There are some things available online. There are even some different apps. And I think it's such a helpful concept when it comes to some of these practical strategies and it has a number of different components. One of those components is sleep hygiene, as you're alluding to. So not having bright light before bed, because we do have internally our own release of melatonin a few hours before we're going to fall asleep. And that tells our brain, oh, here comes night, right? The light is fading. So the melatonin is being released and it's time for sleep. So if we mess with that, and unfortunately you think about just all the lights we have, I mean, I lived in New York for six or seven years, like no, it was never a dark night. So really trying to get your room as, as dark and quiet as possible. So you're not getting some of this external stimulation or external light. So things like not caffeine in the afternoon or evening, not taking naps in the afternoon or evening, because again, anything that diminishes that sleep drive, sort of like if you have to have a full glass of water to fall asleep at night, a nap kind of removes a little bit of that water. So it takes you longer until later to reach that same ability to fall asleep. Not having really heavy exercise or a big meal right before bed, tobacco and alcohol can certainly also interfere with sleep. And just to comment on alcohol, I think there is there are some myths about alcohol being helpful for sleep, and I think it is sedating, and so you might fall asleep. The trouble with alcohol, though, is as it metabolizes in your system, 
those metabolites are pretty stimulating. So you may find that you're waking up and you're not even able to sleep as deeply or as restfully as typical. So maybe you had a you know a few drinks or more than you wished. And then the next morning you say, well, I slept 10 hours. Why am I so exhausted? And part of it's because that's a really fractured sleep. And so I always talk to people about alcohol. Yeah, if you want to have a glass of wine with dinner or two, make sure you're hydrating, eating after that. You have some time before bed to process and metabolize some of this alcohol because drinking a bunch of alcohol and then going to sleep, yeah, you'll fall asleep, but it's going to be really hard to stay asleep and feel rested. So those are some of the sleep hygiene pieces. We also have some other like behavioral things that we work on with individuals. One is really working on what I was talking about earlier and this association between the bed and sleep. And if you start to have this association between the, say the bed and being awake and being restless, one of the strategies that we recommend, which I understand is definitely tough to do. And I've tried to do it myself is if you're lying in bed for roughly 20 minutes or more, and just really restless, staring at the ceiling, you know, you're not going to fall asleep. You're not have to check the clock for it to be 20 minutes, but you know, you're just in this place where it's going to be hard to fall asleep to get up out of bed and go and sit somewhere else quietly, maybe read, maybe listen to music again, try and limit that bright light or meals or TV that can be too stimulating. And you just stay there and do something calmly and quietly until you start to feel sleepy. And then you get back into your bed and see if that whole cycle happens again, guess what? You do it again. And even though there might be a few nights where you're not going to be getting as much sleep because you're doing this, you're trying to, again, retrain your brain that no, bed is not where I lie and feel frustrated. Actually, bed is where I come in when I'm sleepy and I fall right to sleep and it's wonderful and luxurious, right? And the other thing we work on is actually called sleep restriction, which sounds a little punitive, but really what we're trying to do is improve what we call our sleep efficiency. So that means the number of hours in bed you know, versus the number of hours we're asleep. So if we get into bed and we're in bed for eight hours and we sleep for eight, that's hundred percent efficiency, right? But if we're in bed for 10 hours and we only sleep for six, well, then your efficiency really goes down significantly, right? We're at 60%, for example, hope that math is right, but it, you know what I mean? So what we're trying to do is improve the efficiency of sleep. And part of that is, look, if you're getting in bed for 10 hours every night, but you're only sleeping, let's say six and a half or seven, we actually limit your time in bed for the next few nights to just the number of hours you're sleeping. And then as that efficiency really goes up, right? Cause you're in bed only seven hours, you're probably gonna sleep close to that. As that goes up, you start to add some time back in, in bed. And so that can really help with the efficiency because guess what, when sleep is really inefficient, it really affects our beliefs and our thoughts about sleep. And that can really drive further insomnia. And then there's also the cognitive part, the thinking part, the working on those thoughts. And that's where I'm really helping them address some of those catastrophic thoughts. That's where we're exploring some of those thoughts. That's where maybe I would ask them to do something like a worry journal or something during the day, prescribed worry time that they would really sit down and, and do some of this. Even doing some imagery work, some imagery in imagining themselves getting into a luxurious, wonderful sleep, right? And so we really start to work on some of those intrusive thoughts or anxious thoughts. If they're related to sleep to really challenge that. Find things during the day that we know help to decrease those, that anxiety at night, whether it's exercise, call with a friend, limiting our social media feed that really stresses us out, whatever it may be. I think that's really important. And so those are kind of the components 
of CBT for insomnia. And it certainly is, is much beyond that, but that would just be kind of a starting place for people to know a bit more about it. So good. I have become a little bit of a nerd since speaking with you initially. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, um, you spoke about sleep efficiency. Does CBT for insomnia at all, or can you speak to sleep consistency? So like going to bed at around the same time or waking up at the same time, what are your thoughts about sleep consistency? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for asking about that. That is a really key component. I told so, you I've been doing my research. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad. I mean, if people were listening that, that did CBT, they would say, what about the scheduling? So absolutely. The, the goal, again, we're trying to train our brain in so many different ways. But one of the ways is this is when I sleep brain and this is when I wake up. And so you want to try and go to sleep around the same time every night. And you want to try and wake up at the same time in the morning. And I think the latter is the most important. So even if it's a rougher night or it's harder to fall asleep, you still keep that consistent morning wake time and you work on your thoughts about it. So instead of saying, oh my gosh, last night was terrible tonight. What if it's bad again? Okay. Last night was terrible. I still got up at the regular time. Tonight's going to be amazing. I can't wait to go to bed tonight because I'm going to sleep so well, right? So we work on some of that shift but really it's so important to keep a consistent schedule. And so guess what? That's why it can be so difficult when people are doing a lot of shift work, right? Nurses or other healthcare professionals or people who are doing night shift at any job, you're really, if you're changing that often, you're kind of messing with that consistency and that can be really hard on the system. In fact, there's some data, even I think it's in Denmark that they constitute some of the shift work as a risk for cancer because there is some link suggested between the shift work and sleep deprivation and breast cancer in women. So there's such important pieces here in trying to figure out how do we regulate our sleep. And for someone who's doing that kind of shift work, working with someone like me or another therapist who can help them really try to make sure they're getting adequate sleep, even with such a disruptive schedule. Amazing. So many good things here about sleep. This is such a great kind of crash course about it. Um, there's a lot of myths out there about sleep. Obviously, you know, I think a lot of people, as you've touched on before, they may wake up and feel like they had a great night's sleep after four hours, but just because you feel that way, doesn't mean that your quality, you know, of work throughout the day mentally is going to be as good as it would have been had you slept more. Um, so I guess before we wrap up here, uh, what are some myths that you would like to kind of debunk about sleep? And likewise, what would you really, really want people to know um, about sleep in particular? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. So myths, I would say, I mean, you're really alluding to that. The people that say I only need four hours and I'm fine. So there is a really rare genetic anomaly where people can get by on, you know, fewer than six hours of sleep, but that is incredibly rare. So I guarantee the majority of listeners, maybe all do not meet that criteria. They've done some interesting studies. So when I was at Penn, the University of Pennsylvania has really terrific sleep researchers, and they've looked at sort of cognition or thinking over time when they brought in these young, healthy volunteers, and they gave them certain amounts of sleep deprivation. They slept for eight hours, they were allowed to sleep for six, allowed to sleep for four, and did that over a few weeks. And there were even some who were not able to sleep at all, so zero hours, but they could only do that for three nights because otherwise it's just not sustainable. And then they looked at their cognitive performance on this attentional task. And the decline in cognition was really striking when they were fewer than six hours, six hours or fewer night of sleep. But guess what? Their perception of their cognition and of their performance 
state, it plateaued. They thought it was actually the same for six hours versus four, for example, even though it was dropping considerably. So I think there's a mismatch between what we perceive as our functioning and what's actually happening. And so when people do start getting adequate sleep, they'll be amazed at their irritability level dropping, their concentration being better, just everything feeling better. Honestly, if someone's really trying to work on, you know, their weight and trying to stabilize their weight, your metabolism is really affected by sleep deprivation. So you have, you know, some different hormones that are going to be, you know, in flux and it's going to make you more hungry and less satisfied with the amount of food that you eat. You are going to tend to overeat. Right. So there are so many of these important things that people need to know about sleep deprivation, sleep deprivation in the immune system. There's some data to suggest we actually respond better, more robustly to vaccines when we are well, well slept. We're not going to get as many colds or other things when we sleep well. So that's so important for us and our kids who are sort of walking petri dishes when they're in school. Right. Oh gosh, of course. And I think, in, you know, in general, just trying to get high quality sleep when there's so much cultural push to get your attention on all these different things, right? To be online or to be reading this or to be learning this. I mean, our attention is really our most important resource. And so really prioritizing sleep, not that you have to every single night. I like to go out and have fun. I like to stay out late. I mean, much less than I used to, but that doesn't mean that I can't do that sometimes. It's just when I have the choice or when there's an opportunity to really get a good night of rest consistently in general, I want to work toward that so that if I have a night or two where it's not going to be as good, I can recover from that pretty well, right? I'm still well-rested. It's the same with kids. You want them to have a good schedule. So once in a while, you know, you let them stay up a little later and you want them to watch the fireworks or whatever it may be, they can bounce back much more readily than a, you know, a kid who's really sleep deprived. So it's important to keep that in mind. That's awesome. So what I'm hearing is that, it, you know, we don't have to be super rigid about this, right? You know, a lot of times, not always, but people who have OCD and anxiety, they tend to take a suggestion. I just don't want anyone out there to take any of these suggestions and in a sense of urgency, you know, out of anxiety, they have to go and do this perfect plan with their, with their sleep. And, you know, mm -hmm. they have to meet all these criteria all the time. Otherwise X, Y, Z is going to happen. Um, so what I'm hearing is that there's no perfect you know, world, it's still okay. You can stay up and watch the fireworks, you know, every once in a while, life is going to lead you in that direction. Things aren't always going to be perfect, but if you generally try to maintain this for the most part, um, you're going to be much more likely to rebound from those exceptional scenarios than have you kind of been all over the place in the past. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, I think what, when I was rereading John Kabat-Zinn's book, Full Catastrophe Living, talking about his mindfulness-based stress reduction, he said, it's such a misnomer to say, go to sleep as if it's an active process that really it's more, how can I allow myself to relax and fall into sleep or allow myself to go into sleep? So you're right, really rigid. You know, I need to constrict everything around my sleep to really prioritize it certainly can backfire. It's almost like trying to have a little bit of a laissez-faire attitude toward, you know, I'll get into bed. I hope I fall asleep. It may take me a little time, but that's okay is so important. And just keeping that regular wake time in the morning, if that's the one change you make, even on the weekends when it's hard to do, I think that's really important to try. Awesome. Well, in spirit of the podcast, obviously sleep is a difficult thing for people out there. It's hard to not have your phone on you before bed. If that's something that you're used to doing, it's hard to kind of wrap your head around some of these techniques for the first time, if you're hearing it. But, um, I always ask my guests, 
Uh, why do you think it's so important to do hard things? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as we wrap up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think when we're treating anxiety in general, we know that avoidance of things that are difficult can really cause problems in the long run. And so you're delaying and prolonging the suffering that you're experiencing. I had heard someone describe this idea that you could bury negative emotions or negative feelings. It leaches into the soil and it affects how you can grow and thrive. And so I do think it's so important to be trying to face some of these challenging situations with some support, with your support network mobilized, but really trying to move toward them as opposed to avoiding because you really can get through them. You really have so much within you, even when it comes to sleep, especially sleep, it's so biologically powerfully mediated that you have everything you need within you to get a good night's rest. Awesome. I need to listen to this. It was so calming and inform informational at the same time. This was awesome. So um, Dr. Reed, thank you so much for being here. Before we finally cut off here, I want to make sure everyone um, knows a little bit more about you and where to find more about you, including your podcast, your Instagram. So feel free now. Let's hear where can people find more about you and all the awesome work that you do. Yeah, very cool. So my podcast is called The Reflective Doc because I want to try and reflect back to the people out there, some of these really helpful strategies and my experiences through my training. So the Reflective Doc, it's on Apple or Spotify. My website's thereflectivedoc.com and the Reflective Doc on Instagram as well. And would love to hear from people and, and hear what they might like to hear more about on my podcast, for example. So thank you for asking. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. This was really fun. And thank you for enlightening all of us. Hopefully everyone listening can get just a little bit better sleep tonight. So thanks everybody for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For more information and resources, head to my website at www.jennaoverbaugh.com. From there, you can sign up for my email newsletter so you can make sure that you are the most up-to-date about upcoming resources, podcast episodes, blogs, challenges, and more. Also, check me out on Instagram at jenna.overbaugh and tune into some other episodes here while you're at it. As always, if you have a free minute, it would mean the world to me if you could please subscribe and rate this podcast. Subscriptions and ratings help me keep the podcast going and help me spread the word to other people who need these resources and they otherwise may not get them. With that said, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really love creating these episodes for you. And until next time, keep doing all the hard things.